Well, Darren and I were saying a minute ago before we began this live stream that we were so in the habit of saying, children, you are dismissed to Children's Church. Um, so, children, you're not dismissed to Children's Church. You can stay here. We have the best of both worlds. You can make all the noise you want, and I can keep preaching. So that's, uh, that's the best of both worlds. But we are excited to continue to proclaim God's Word. And, and as we do so, we're in John chapter 18. John chapter 18 will be there shortly. But I want to take a little bit of time to just shepherd our hearts this morning before we get into our text. This is a unique and an historic time which we're cut off from one another right now because of this coronavirus and the, the restrictions placed on daily functioning. And so this is the time for us as believers in Jesus Christ to really reaffirm the truths which give the mature believer a, a solid foundation upon which to place any event of suffering or any event of trial. And so before we get into our text this morning, I want to reiterate some very basic biblical truths that we can apply to the coronavirus crisis here. And I'm going to give you four. Now, if you've been at Grace Bible Church for any length of time, you'll be familiar with these. I've preached these principles. I've written about these four principles in a variety of ways. They are rock-solid truths that you can count on. So here they are in brief form. The first principle, a foundation upon which to place our suffering or any trial, the first principle is God owns all things. God owns all things. Exodus 19.5, God says, All the earth is mine. Job 41.11, whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 50, verse 12, the world is mine and all it contains. There's no lack of clarity here at all. And of course, that includes us. We're owned because we are made. We're made by our maker. And so the maker can do as he pleases with all that is his, which is everything. And so not only does God own all things, we add to this for our second principle, the second truth, God owns all things and causes all things. God owns all things and causes all things. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38 says, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Job 2, verse 10, Job asks his wife in the midst of his trial, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In fact, the Lord Jesus acknowledged exactly who was behind his own impending death. He said in John six thirty eight, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And you have noticed as you've read through the Gospels on your own that Jesus was never once angry with his father for letting him die. He was designed to do this. He was, rather, the plan was designed for Christ to die. That was the plan all along. And Christ accepted that. And so we can build on that foundational truth with a, a third truth. God owns all things, causes all things. And third, and causes all things to work together for our good. He causes all things to work together for our good. Very familiar to us, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. Not a few things, not some things, not most things. All things work together for good. And you have noticed that God does not obligate himself to explain how this happens. He just promises that it does. And so he desires good for you, even in the midst and, and 
especially in the midst of a difficult time. And so we can add to that a fourth foundational truth. God owns all things, causes all things, causes all things to work together for our good, and causes all things to work together for His glory. It's all for His glory. Romans 11.36 has this beautiful benediction for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be glory forever. Amen. Now, listen, if we don't understand these basic theological truths, this foundation concerning the nature of God, then in our trials, we're, we're robbed of the joy that really is rightly ours because if you don't understand these, we have a, a little bitty God who's unable to bear the weight of a crisis. But if we understand that God owns all things, causes all things, causes all things to work together for our good, and causes all things to work together for His glory, now our God is big and we trust Him and we have this peaceful confidence. God is sovereignly and perfectly in control of every trial. God has never worried. He's never been caught off guard. He's never had a committee meeting with angels to vote on what to do. He's never said, "Uh uh-oh. He's never said, oops. Trials test how deeply we hold our conviction to an almighty God who is totally sovereign. Here's a question I've gotten as a pastor many, many times, and perhaps you're asking this question now. Someone may be asking the question, why is God letting this happen? Well, could I clarify this? God is not letting this crisis happen. He is making it happen. He's making it happen. And who are we to question his wisdom? Isaiah 45, verse 7, God proclaims, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So this is really an unarguable point that God owns all things, causes all things, causes all things to work together for our good and causes all things to work together for his glory. And this knowledge is going to put you into one of two categories. It's going to put you either in the category of those who are comforted by this knowledge or it's going to put you in the category of those who are enraged by this knowledge. So if you're enraged by the idea, by the fact that God says, I make well-being and create calamity, then our message this morning is definitely for you because you need to find out why you're enraged. Then I'm going to answer that question this morning. But if you're in the category of being comforted by this knowledge today, what you're going to receive is a review of the grace and the kindness and the goodness of a God who, yes, creates calamity, but he has also made well-being in your life through the forgiveness of sin offered through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And so, speaking of Christ and the cross and the gospel, let's get into our text this morning as we've really just begun in John 18. In our journey toward the cross... We've been outlining the gospel truths which are really embedded in the, the fibers of this story. And we're putting together a short gospel presentation based on John 18, 19, and 20. So far, here's our short presentation. We've said, quote, Jesus Christ came as a completely willing sacrifice. He freely fulfilled his father's plan for his suffering. Because you cannot pay the penalty of your sins, Christ offered himself as a substitute on your behalf. And so in our message this morning, we'll add this sentence. You have sinned against God to the degree to deserve eternal punishment. And even your best intentions are not good enough. 
So we've begun our journey here toward the cross and we've seen the betrayal, the arrest of Jesus. We pointed out last time that in this section of John chapter 18, John now follows two stories that are happening at the same time. They're, they're parallel to one another. We have the account of what's happening to Jesus and the account of what's happening to Jesus' disciple, Peter. And so last time we focused in on Christ, what he was happening to him, as we saw the gospel lesson that you must believe the substitution of Christ. And today, in the person of Peter, in this parallel track, we're going to see that you must believe your need for Christ. And again, this sentence in our gospel presentation, you have sinned against God to the degree to deserve eternal punishment, and even your best intentions are not good enough. And so we pick up the story where Peter and the other disciples now, they've run away when Jesus has been arrested and taken away. Jesus has been taken to the former high priest, Annas, who really still runs the high priestly family business. And Jesus is put before Annas here in an informal hearing. And we saw last time that Annas broke the law. He tried to get Jesus to witness against himself, and he uh, refused to hear witnesses for Jesus, both of which were illegal in a, in a formal hearing. Now, just as a reminder of what's happening to Jesus, as we look at Peter in the same moments, let's, let's remind ourselves of what is going on with Jesus. John chapter 18, verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And then we pick up still what's happening with Jesus in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I have said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So this meeting with Annas happening in the courtyard of his home, a place which would allow for a lot of public access. And because of this, Peter is now able to slink back in to see what's happening just kind of from a distance. And so at the very same time that this first trial of Jesus is happening, we pick up in verse 15 of John 18. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Now, my mission this morning is to convince you that if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that you need him. And to remind those who do know Christ precisely what it is you were saved from. And to make this case, I want to keep this very simple. I want to give you three reasons that you need Christ. Three reasons that you have. Here's our gospel presentation. You have sinned against God to the degree to deserve eternal punishment. And even your best intentions are not good enough. So I want to give you these three reasons that you need Christ. We'll, we'll do these up front. And then we'll work through them. The first reason, you sin effortlessly despite warnings. 
You sin repeatedly despite witnesses, and you sin intentionally despite waiting. One more time. You sin effortlessly despite warnings. You sin repeatedly despite witnesses, and you sin intentionally despite waiting. First reason you need Christ. You sin effortlessly despite warnings. Despite warnings. Again, verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus so that another disciple, since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. Verse 16, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now it's very late at night by this time. Probably well past midnight. It's cold in the springtime night. Peter is close. He's concerned. He's worried. He's eager to be near Christ in some proximity. But we read here that Peter's not alone. He's not the only one to have come back quietly after having run away at the arrest of Jesus. Peter is with another disciple, the text says. There's only one other time in John's gospel that that phrase, another disciple, or in Greek, the other disciple, is used. And that's in John 20, verse 2, and that refers to the author of this gospel, to John himself. So how is it that John, who is just a humble fisherman by trade, how would he be known to the high priestly family in order to get Peter into this courtyard? Well, there's actually three ways that he would be known, or that we know that this is John, rather, and this is, this is very logical. The first way that John could be known is that he was part of a high priestly family at some level. He was part of the, not necessarily the high priestly family, but a priestly family. His mother, if you can follow this little chart here in your mind, his mother was Salome. Salome was Mary's sister, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary was related to Elizabeth, who is called a daughter of Aaron, that is the priestly family, And of course, Elizabeth was married to the priest Zechariah. And so this is entirely possible, particularly in a culture where family ties and family unity and family connections are everything. It's completely possible for John to be known by the high priest. As a matter of fact, the early church father, Polycrates of Ephesus, he wrote a letter in AD 190 in which he referred to John, quote, as a priest as if it were well known that John came from a priestly family. There's a second reason that John could be known to the priestly family. John was the son of Zebedee, who had a large fishing business. Mark chapter 1 tells us this. And he was part of the large fish trade, which happened between the northern province of Galilee, and they would deliver fish down to Jerusalem. And so it's almost certain that Zebedee supplied the high priest's family with fish. As a matter of fact, in the extra-biblical book, the Gospel of the Hebrews, it's not a Bible book, but it is historical. This was written just a couple of decades after John's death, and that particular book notes that the young John, before he was an apostle, used to deliver fish to the high priest's home. And so they knew him from many years back. And one kind of third reason that it's very feasible for John to be this other disciple. Peter and John are seen together in the Gospels more than any other two disciples. They were seen together at the Passover meal just a few hours earlier in John 13. They're listed together at the news of Christ's resurrection in John 20. 
They're listed together fishing after the resurrection of Christ. They're listed together at the house of Jairus when Jesus resurrected his little girl in Mark 5. They're listed together at the transfiguration of Jesus. And they're waiting closest to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus prayed in his anguish just a few minutes before this event is taking place. And so it's no surprise to us at all that John is used by God to get Peter into the courtyard of Annas, the high priest emeritus. Now, you might be saying, why is that important? Why is it important that Peter get close to Christ? Well, in the providence of God, John is used by God to place Peter into this situation, which would be the lowest point of his life, the most degrading point of his life, the most embarrassing point of his life, to the place To put Peter where he would see his own sin and all its disgusting ugliness and betrayal. And for the rest of his life, Peter would have an intimate grasp with the horror and the disgusting nature and the filth and the wretchedness of the human soul before God. And so, Peter sins effortlessly, without effort. Now, what do we mean by this? Verse 17 The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And here's his first denial. He said, I am not. Now the doorkeeper was a servant girl and Peter lied to get in. And by the way, he did so with John standing right there next to him. And this is how effortlessly he sinned. The Greek construction of this question means she assumed that he would say no. It's like she's saying, you aren't one of his disciples, are you? So Peter had a choice. He could take the hard route of correcting the tone of her question, or he could take the easy, the the one that takes no effort. And he did. He took the easy route of escape. How easily he lied, and worse, how easily he denied knowing Christ. As a matter of fact, while John's gospel only records Peter saying, I am not, Mark gives more of this first denial. He went on to say, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And Luke's gospel adds the rest of this first denial. Woman, I do not know him. Now he begun down this slippery slope of sin and he did so without effort. Listen, for us as Christians, it's pretty wise for us to remember with humility what Christ has saved you from. Listen, you were not saved from being a a pretty decent person who just needed one last little push into righteousness. As a matter of fact, the more decent and good you appeared on the outside, the more heinous and disgusting was your sin because in addition to all your other sins, you could add hypocrisy to your list of sins. I've heard many people say, well, I, I was a pretty decent person. I just needed God's help to go the rest of the way. Could I prove to you that you were not a pretty good person? You were not a pretty decent person? Let me just give you a list. Every one of you has had sexually immoral thoughts or actions. Husbands wishing for a different wife. Wives wishing for a different husband. Lingering looks and thoughts. Long contemplations of someone who's not your spouse. Every one of you has been greedy for something in your heart. For more fulfillment, more money, more power, more prestige, more pleasure. Every one of you has connived to get something you want by means of swindling or tricking others. And you might say, no, I'm, I'm better than that. I've never swindled or tricked anybody. Really? When you say no to someone's request and give an excuse that isn't true, 
Aren't you swindling them into believing that you have a legitimate reason to refuse their request? Every one of you has wanted something more than you want God, at least in that moment. The sin of idolatry. And you might say, I've never been an idolater. Well, that's another way of saying I've never been selfish. And every one of you has said something to another to control them, to diminish them, to cut at them, to tear them down instead of building them up. The Bible calls this reviling This verbal abuse, whether in tone or in content. So what does the Bible say about this list, about the sexually immoral, the greedy, the swindler, the idolater, the reviler? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not. But my point is not merely you sin effortlessly, it's you sin effortlessly despite warnings. Despite warnings, as a matter of fact, you kept right on sinning after being warned. You say, well, I was never warned. Well, yes, you were. You were warned in the church, perhaps as an unbeliever. You were warned by those around you. You were warned by the negative consequences of your own sin. But most definitely, you were warned by your own God-given conscience. Your conscience is the God-created rational capacity that is the witness to what you really value. It tells you what you really hold dear. Romans 2.15 says that the conscience of the unbeliever, listen to this, is the law of God written on their hearts to instinctively know right from wrong, and yet they ignore it. And so you were warned, and yet you kept sinning. Now, where is this in our text here? Well, Peter was warned as well. Jesus told them as recorded in Mark's gospel, in Mark 14, 30, very familiar to us. Jesus told Peter, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, we tend to assume that the rooster crowed twice immediately after Peter's third denial. That's not what scripture says happened. It doesn't say that anywhere in the text. Jesus never said that the rooster would crow twice in the same moment. Mark 14, 68 says that after the first denial of Peter, quote, and he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed after the first denial. This was the first crowing, a a warning. But Peter didn't heed that warning. He didn't stop. Listen, you and I both, we've failed God in countless ways. You've offended God, I've offended God in your words, in your deeds, in your thoughts. And and even if you were a pretty good person in your own mind, James 2.10 takes that away. James reminds us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Your need for Christ was immense. It was unmeasurable. But here's where our hope comes. That very same 1 Corinthians 6 passage which states all those who will not inherit the kingdom of God also says of the Christian in 1 Corinthians 6.10 but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Well, let me give you another reason you needed Christ. Not only do you sin effortlessly despite warning You sin repeatedly despite witnesses. You sin repeatedly despite witnesses. And we pick up in verse 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. 
Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now, it's very interesting that John gives us the detail. This is a charcoal fire. And you may be thinking, I didn't know Kingsford Charcoal went back that far. Uh, the Kingsford Charcoal Company was started 100 years ago, uh, this year in fact, but they didn't invent charcoal. And this detail is here for a reason. It's been around actually for thousands of years. So let's talk charcoal just for a moment and why this is important. This is the only time in the New Testament that charcoal is referenced. It was mass produced by piling up wood in kind of a beehive formation, putting a funnel in the middle of it, then blocking the funnel with, with leaves and dirt. And after the fire was lit, then, then this blocked funnel kept the fire from ever developing. It would slow burn for several days and it would make charcoal. And now this charcoal could be taken and burned very easily and it would burn for many hours. But here's what's important. A charcoal fire isn't a roaring fire. It's a quiet smoldering warmth which gives a lot of heat but very little light. In fact, it would give just kind of this dull red glow. What does this mean? Well, it means that Peter was still trying to get away with something. He thought he could hide in the shadows even by the charcoal fire. He was shadowed, he was partly unrecognizable, and so dangerously he stands there trying to blend in with the servants and the temple officers who were around the fire so that he could hear what was going on in the other part of the courtyard, so he could listen to what was happening to his Lord. Then we skip ahead to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Here's a second denial. He denied it and said, I am not. Now you notice that multiple people around the fire are saying to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? But this is only part of the picture that John chooses to give. There's actually a much bigger scene happening here. Matthew and Mark both mention a girl who didn't address Peter but came to those around the fire and those all around her saying, this man was with Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, he has in mind the same girl who was the doorkeeper and it's possible that there was a second servant girl as well. The Gospel of Luke speaks of a man directly addressing Jesus saying, you also are one of them. In Luke, he adds the detail that Peter replies to the man, man, I am not. And so we have the doorkeeper, maybe a second servant girl, many around the fire, and one specific man, all accusing Jesus of being, accusing Peter rather, of being with Jesus as his disciple. Now listen, Jesus said there would be three denials. It's only our assumption that every denial is in response to only one person asking the question. At this second denial, Peter was pressed by multiple people, many witnesses. What an opportunity to stand up for Christ. Multiple people around the fire, all chiming in to question Peter. You were with him. Aren't you his disciple? You know him. Aren't you with that guy? Mark's gospel says, again, he denied it. And this is an imperfect verb. It means he denied it to everyone around him and he repeated himself. No, 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 no. Repeatedly. So Peter sinned for the second time and now in front of more and more witnesses and sadly, there was no attempt to arrest Peter. Why? Because he was extremely convincing that he loved his sin. How many witnesses were there to Peter's sin? 
Well, I'll let you be the judge of that because if you can figure out how many people have read the Gospels, then you can count the witnesses. John's Gospel graciously gives the most brief account of Peter's denials, but his denials are recorded in all four Gospels. Peter can't run from this. He can't find a place to hide from this. Peter is safe in none of the Gospel accounts. And that, by the way, was the nature and is the nature of your sin. Romans 2.16 says that God will judge the secrets of men. All will be laid bare. Nothing will be hidden. Revelation 20 says the books, plural, on your life will be opened. And not only will God list all the people who have witnessed and been victimized by your sin, God himself has been witness to all and ultimately it is against him that we sin. And all will be revealed from your first conscious willful sin to your very last. And Romans 3.19 says, every mouth will be closed. And so what possible defense can you give for the sins that take books and books and books to record? There's only one defense. And only one defense attorney. A defense attorney. Your lawyer, the Bible uses the word advocate and that is the lord jesus christ himself and here is your defense given by your lawyer by your heavenly advocate his defense for you will be this one's name is written in the lamb's book of life and all those sins have been charged to my account instead of the condemnation you so richly deserve you'll receive the the welcoming open arms of god himself who does and will treat you listen to this as if you've never offended him one time. You need Christ because you sin effortlessly despite warnings. You sin repeatedly despite witnesses. One more reason you need Christ. Third, you sin intentionally despite waiting. You sin intentionally despite waiting. Verse 26 One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And now this is getting even more serious. One of the servants is a relative of Malchus, the man whose ear Peter just hacked off a few minutes earlier. And now if Peter admits to knowing Christ, now he's setting himself up to be arrested for attempted murder. As a matter of fact, Matthew's gospel records that this man was suspicious because of Peter's Galilean accent. And now Peter is adamant, he's unwavering, he's stubborn. Matthew records that Peter, quote, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. He swears, I do not know Christ. Now let me stop right here. What do we normally do with our sin by nature? What's our instinct? Well, we rationalize, or worse, we place blame elsewhere. This is exactly what Adam and Eve both did in the garden. One of the ways we place blame elsewhere is to say to ourselves, I I just wasn't thinking, or I just reacted, or I just went on instinct, or I just did it. But Peter can't claim that excuse. Want to know why? Because Luke's gospel tells us that it was an hour between the second denial and his third denial. This wasn't a case of one sin happening quickly after another before there's a chance to think. Peter was there for an hour listening and hearing his Lord and his friend and his Savior 
Jesus Christ being accused and maligned and bound and slapped. And after an hour of hearing and seeing Jesus humiliated and falsely accused, when asked if he belonged with Christ, he swore an oath and said, I do not. His sin was intentional, even after waiting and having the opportunity to think and to reconsider. So listen, the unforgiven sinner should never, ever think that he'll make some great excuse to God. There is no excuse. No allowances are made. No extensions. No penance. No second chances. God will say you had a lifetime to consider and reconsider and reconsider and reconsider your sin and you did it anyway. By the way, why doesn't God simply forgive everyone? Well, because... He can and will forgive only those who believe they need forgiveness. Jesus said in Mark 2, 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, the one who thinks himself righteous will not come to the one who can heal him of his sin, who can forgive. Only the one who acknowledges his need will go to the great physician. And that, by the way, is the entire point of this message. The one who doesn't acknowledge his need for Christ cannot and will not under any circumstances be forgiven. No grace will be given. And it will be this pride which is the undoing of the lost of, of all those who will not bend the knee of humility, who will not loosen the tongue of repentance to receive mercy and grace offered by the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter had great intentions, but they weren't enough. They were not powerful enough to save him, to keep him from denying Christ And now to complete the prediction of Jesus Christ, verse 27, Peter again denied it and at once a rooster crowed. John weaves Jesus' first interrogation in together with Peter's witnessing of the same events. John has constructed the narrative in such a way that it gives us a contrast. And the contrast is one where Jesus stands up to his interrogators and denies nothing And John shrinks before his questioners and denies everything. Luke's gospel records the heartbreaking end to Peter's failure. Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. All in one look of disappointment, of grief, of hurt, of sorrow, three and a half years of nonstop friendship and nonstop ministry. These precious memories of Jesus calling out to Simon who was fishing and saying, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Jesus renaming Simon, Peter, the rock. Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus helping Peter walk on water. Peter always listed first among the disciples. Peter coming to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and making this proclamation by the power of the Father. Peter being allowed to see the transfigured glory of Christ on the mountaintop. Jesus paying Peter's taxes for him by getting money from a fish's mouth. And just a couple of hours earlier, Peter 
sharing a Passover meal with his Lord Jesus after his Lord washed his feet. Was this poignant eye contact from the Lord Jesus to Peter just an expression of sorrow and disappointment from Jesus? No, it wasn't. It was much more than that. It was the conviction of God himself looking into the very soul, looking into the very guilty heart of Peter and opening the door for Peter to true repentance. And we see now for the first time Peter truly broken under the weight of his own sin. This is an important moment because at this moment there's no apparent difference between the wicked high priest and Peter because both of them are distancing themselves from Christ. But there is one key difference, one vital difference. Earlier that evening, Jesus said to Simon Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And because of Peter's intimate knowledge of his deep need for Christ, Peter is the one, 30 years later, who would write so beautifully, quoting from Isaiah 53, 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned the shepherd and overseer of your souls from the pen of Peter. The coronavirus is here because sin is here. The coronavirus particles have spiked proteins, microscopic thorns. And these thorns attach themselves to cell membrane, membranes like Velcro and it drains then its deadly genetic material into the human cell. Because of his rebellion as the representative of all mankind, Adam was told by God that creation is cursed and that the ground would bring forth thorns and thistles and that mankind is cursed and will pay the penalty of death. Listen, the the coronavirus is merely undeniable evidence that we live in a fallen world among fallen people that God is keeping his word. And while the coronavirus might take your life, sin will take your soul. And sin will take your eternity. Jesus put this in in great perspective for us in Matthew 10, 28. He said, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Who is this? Who is him who can destroy both soul and body in hell? It is God himself. It is the wrath of God against sin which every sinner outside of Christ can fully expect. And it's the grace of God to save, which every repentant person can fully expect as well. Listen, we may be focused on coronavirus deaths right now, and we're concerned about death rates in the thousands. But can we put this in perspective? By the end of this year, 56 million people will have died anyway. Today, 152,000 people on this planet will die without the help of the coronavirus. Why do they die? They die because God said, 
Genesis 3.19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Listen, either the coronavirus will kill you or something else will. In fact, we would say that the coronavirus is very much a mercy of God to bring our own mortality to the forefront once again so that the unforgiven sinner might act, might call out to God for mercy, might call out to God for Christ to forgive his sins so that now there's no fear of death, none whatsoever. Peter is definite evidence that we need Christ, definite evidence that you need Christ. Arguably, no one else in the Gospels was more devoted to Christ, and yet he failed in his own power. And so I'd like to close this morning by giving you a gospel presentation from the pen of Peter himself, who was saved by grace. Here is Peter's gospel presentation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is a man saved by grace, a man who failed Christ in every way possible and yet now is our example of one who has received the forgiveness from Christ. My prayer is that if you are listening to this and you have not received Christ as your Savior and Lord, this is your time. This is your moment. The coronavirus has put before you your own mortality. You will die, whether from this or from something else. And may it be that you use this time to receive Christ's free offer of forgiveness from sin. Could we pray? Our Father, we thank you so much Though we are remote as a church body right now, we are distanced in miles. We are together in spirit. We are together under the banner of Christ, our Savior. We are together under the shadow of the glorious cross of Christ. We cling to Christ. We cling to the cross. And Lord, we would pray for our church body that you would draw us close together in various means possible. We pray for continued faithfulness to one another, that we would comfort each other. And more importantly, that we would be an example of peace as we are those who rest firmly on the foundation of the fact that you own all things and you cause all things. You cause all things to work together for our good and you cause all things to work together for your glory. Might you do that in this instance? We would pray for a man or a woman listening to this message who does not know Christ may even now they be getting on their knees and praying for the mercy of God to come through the blood which was shed by our Lord Jesus at the cross of Christ for we needed Christ and he answered the call and for that we give him honor and glory and thanks in his name
Amen.
Well, we have begun our Lord's Day today in the Word of God, singing songs in our homes, and and it's been a joy for uh, the couple of us who are here, and we are delighted to uh, connect with you via this means, and it'll make our reunion together in the coming weeks all the sweeter. I want to encourage you to tune in tonight at 6.30 p.m., and we'll be on again, uh, continuing on in in John uh, chapter 18. And so uh, with that, let me uh, go ahead and close us with the blessing of Aaron. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Lord bless all of you and we'll see you this evening at 6.30 online.